thank you everyone who's been involved in our service so far. This morning uh, we looked at uh, the beginning of 1 Samuel. We checked out mostly uh, chapter 2. We looked a little bit at chapter 3, but uh, this evening what I'd like to do is kind of continue on in the book, and my expectation is next week um, we're going to look at in the morning chapters 5 and 6. So today we're going to continue on with 1 Samuel chapter 4. So you're certainly welcome to open your Bibles up to chapter 4, but uh, most of the scripture, if not all, will be on the screen uh, up above. So the book of Samuel up to this point has had no battles. We've seen no war. It has concerned individuals and their narratives. And again, if you were here this morning, you saw that, especially in the people of, or the, the persons of Hannah, Samuel, Eli, and his sons, as we looked at this morning. So we see, we've seen mostly narratives of individuals. And tonight, chapter 4, we're going to see is a little bit different. And I'd like, or I think it's um, a very interesting chapter in the book of 1 Samuel for, for several reasons. For one, Samuel, possibly the main character of the first eight chapters of, book, of the book, is mentioned only one in the first verse of the passage. Second, I think it's quite interesting in that we see some of the individual's narratives coming together and even some coming to an end. So, as I said, we see Samuel just a little bit, but we're going to see Eli and his sons in this passage as well. And then third, I find it interesting in that a new focus appears, a new focus that we haven't seen for actually several books in uh, the books of the Bible, um, finding that this chapter is centered on the Ark of the Covenant. So in the beginning of chapter 4, we encounter a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. The Israelites, as many of us know, are the people of God, the people whom he had chosen to bless and to declare his name to all the nations. The Philistines, on the other hand, we may be a little bit uh, less familiar with. In the Philistines, uh, they've been mentioned several times in the scriptures up to this point, and especially in the book of Judges, we find that they're the enemies of Shamgar and Samson, the judges. The Philistines were people known as the Sea People, as it is believed they just appeared from the west coast of the land of Canaan around the same time as the Israelites settled in the land as well. But we see from the scriptures especially, but other places as well, that the Philistines were a constant threat to the people of Israel as they lived in very close proximity to the Israelites. So as we turn to the book of 1 Samuel, as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see the first two verses. The first two verses of the chapter, we see the battle is not looking good. As we come to this chapter, we see a battle's taking place, and it's not looking too good for the Israelites as they have just went up against the Philistines. And they were defeated, and 4,000 Israelites were killed. With this context, the story moves forward. So first, we, the first thing we see Israel does after this defeat is they regather and they question God. And we see this from 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3, which says, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Two things to take notice of. First, it is the elders of Israel who do the questioning. These are the men who were made leaders over the different tribes of Israel by Moses to help him in leading the people as we can as can be seen by Numbers 11, 16 through 17. And I'll read that. Starting at verse 16, it says, 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself. So we see as early as the time of Moses that these elders, these leaders of the tribes of Israel are put into place. And we see they're still into place here in the book of 1 Samuel, hundreds of years later. And we see the elders continue on even into the time of Saul and later on into the kings. They have an influential uh, part in Israel's history. So second to take notice we take notice of their question. It says, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? As the Israelites, as they question, as the elders question, we see that they're, in their questioning, they're correct. They have a correct understanding that the Lord is in control. He is over all things. So they conclude he must have allowed them to be defeated. But we have to ask the question, why? We then see Israel's solution. Their solution is stated in verse 3. It says, Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So we see their solution is to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. Their reasoning is so that it may be with them and so that it might save them from the Philistines. And we may ask the question, how is this answering the question, why did the Lord defeat them in the first battle, as they had asked? They asked, why had the Lord defeated them? And we may ask, how is bringing up the Ark of the Covenant going to help? Or how is that answering why the Lord defeated them? Before, before we can fully understand this, we have to look at what was the Ark of the Covenant. And what I have up on the screen is the ESV Study Bible puts it very nicely. So I'm going to read um, exactly what they or how they explain the Ark of the Covenant. It says, The Ark of the Covenant was the only piece of furniture in the most holy place. The Ark and its contents were kept hidden from view at all times. The Ark itself was a wooden chest overlaid with pure gold, measuring 3.75 feet long, 2.25 feet wide, and 2.25 feet high. It contained within it the two stone tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments, the author of Hebrews adds that it also contained a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded. The ark was not to be touched by human hands. Two wooden poles overlaid with gold were used to transport it and were not to be removed from the ark. The mercy seat or atonement cover was a solid golden slab that fitted perfectly on top of the ark. The golden cherubim, which were hammered out of the same piece of gold, had wings outstretched over the mercy seat and faces that looked downward. It was here from between the cherubim that God spoke to Moses, the representative of the people of Israel. Ancient iconography what often depicts cherubim as having a lion-like body, wings, and a human face. So simply we can see that the Ark of the Covenant was symbolic for the very presence of God as God had spoken to Moses from it. The Israelites believed that they were defeated because they did not bring the very presence of God into battle. So they were, or they were bringing him in to fight for them. The Israelites carry out their solution. We see this in 1 Samuel 4.4, 4, which says, So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, 
And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. So we see that they carry out their solution. We see that they bring it up, and we see that they believe that this act of bringing the Ark into battle would save them from the Philistines. But along with the Ark comes the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Keep this deep, or I'd recommend keeping this detail in, in mind as we move throughout the story. So after the first four verses, the setting is presented and the actions that take place in the first four verses by Israel will cause the rest of the events as they come into play. So first, we see two responses of Israel. So as we move on in the story, we get two responses to this ark, to the ark of the covenant being brought into the battle. So the first response we see is Israel's. 1 Samuel 4, 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. So we see Israel responds to the Ark by shouting with a mighty war cry. And we see this was so mighty that the ground itself shook and it trembled. And these actions show Israel's confidence. But why are they so confident? I'd say it's not only because they believed God was coming into the camp, coming into the battle, but also because of something else. It's important to see that this response should remind us of another time that Israel brought the ark into, the, into battle and shouted loudly. So from jo Joshua 6, 1 through 7, which I think is a very common story, we see these same things taking place. The ark of the covenant coming into the battle and also the Israelites shouting. So Joshua 6, 1 through 7 says, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Verse 4, Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. So we see this is very similar to this familiar story of the walls of Jericho being knocked down. When the Ark of the Covenant was brought, the trumpet sounded and the people shouted. So it seems as if Israel was seeking to repeat the things that were done with the wall of Jericho. They had victory at Jericho, so maybe their train of thought was, why wouldn't they have victory by doing the same things now? Why wouldn't they have victory by bringing the very presence of God into the battle? But this also reiterates Israel's reasoning on their solution. They were seeking to make God fight for them. They knew that the ark represented him and his presence, and along with this, it had been brought into the battle once before at the command of God, and victory came from that battle. Then we get the Philistines' response, and theirs is a twofold response. First, we see the Philistines begin by fearing what they heard. 1 Samuel 4 Verses 6 through 8, it says, And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? 
And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So the Philistines, they hear this mighty shout. They hear this mighty shout and they question why they were crying out. And as I think about this, I think about what the Philistines would have expected going or around this same time. They've just defeated the Israelites. They've killed 4,000 of their men. What would have they expected? I don't think they would have expected a mighty war cry. I think they would have expected to hear crying, to hear weeping, maybe a cry for surrender. So this mighty war cry was anything but what they might have expected. Also, as the word came to them that the ark of the Lord had come to the Israelites' camp, and the Philistines show a, we see the Philistines show a surprising awareness and knowledge of Israel's God. First, if, as we look at the passage above, first they know a God was connected with the ark. As we see, they say, a God has come into the camp. So they see, as they hear the ark comes into the camp, they know that a God is connected with the ark of the covenant. Second, they know this is a God of power. As they say, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Third, we see the Philistines realize that they are in a hopeless situation going up against this God. As they say, woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? And fourth and lastly, we see the Philistines know some of the specific acts of this God. As they say, these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So what's amazing is that these pagans, this idolatrous nation, has more fear of God than his own people do. What a comparison. The ark puts the Philistines in a chaotic and fearful mess while the Israelites disregard God and use his ark, his presence, as a tool. Interestingly, as, we, as well, is that the Philistines have this knowledge of God, yet they don't fear him enough to turn to him in reverent obedience. They may fear him and even respect him, but yet they do not submit to his rule. So just as kind of a side note from this, I think it's interesting to see how those who do not know God, so even unbelievers today who do not have a relationship with God, they could have a great knowledge of God. They could know a lot about the Bible. They may have even read the Bible. But if they do not, or even if they have this great knowledge, they may not still turn to him in submission. So just because they know a lot, just because they uh, know of God, doesn't mean they're going to submit their lives to him. The second response of the Philistines is that the Philistines raise up in confidence. 1 Samuel 4 9. It says, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So we see the completely opposite reaction amongst the camp. We're given different um, reactions from the Philistines. The first was one of fear, but then they realize if they don't fight, if they give up, and, or if they even fight in fear, they can become slaves. So th though they're scared, though they seem to fear this God, they decide that it would be better to fight lest they become enslaved to the people of Israel. We see the second battle takes place, and the ark of the Lord makes no difference. 1 Samuel 4, 10 through 11, it says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. 
and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And actually, we even see that this is an even worse defeat as the first battle. As I said, 4,000 died in the first battle, and then we get the results of this battle, this second battle. We see every man left alive fled. There was no regathering. We saw in the first battle there was a regathering. The ark was brought. This time there's no regathering. We also see it's even worse in that 30,000 Israelites are killed compared to just 4,000. We see the ark is captured, and we see Hophni and Phinehas, two of the priests of Israel, die. So the solution of Israel had absolutely no effect other than that it gave Israel confidence. It was even captured. And we begin to see some of the meaning and the intentions of the author that the author has for this story. In that the book, in, book, in the book of 1 Samuel, a prophecy is fulfilled in this passage. What God said would happen in chapter 2 and 3 comes true with the death of Hophni and Phinehas. The important question to ask then is why had they lost? What was wrong with their solution? So again, why had they lost? Why had the Israelites lost, though they brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle? And we'll begin by answering this by looking at what Israel did not do. First, Israel had not looked to the, word, to the Lord or His Word. We see that there was no inquiring of God that's recorded or mentioned. It seems as if the Israelites decide what they do next solely on their own decision-making without looking to God. This point is made even more clear by looking at verse 1 of this chapter. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So if we look back at verse 1 of this passage, it says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And if we looked even before this chapter, chapter 3, we see the context of this passage falls immediately after the calling of Samuel. Samuel at the time was only a young boy when he was called, and God called him to carry his word to the people as his prophet. And it was not that Israel was unaware of such a thing, but they knew Samuel was a prophet. They knew he had the word of the Lord. But we see Israel did not inquire of God. They had a prophet right on hand, right with them at Shiloh, but they did not inquire of God. So Israel failed to look to the Lord for a solution. So we see that's the first reason in which or why Israel had lost. Second, Notice what Israel did not do in that they did not seek to address their sinful hearts. What was wrong with this was that Israel did not seek to fix their own issue, their own problems. Remember, Israel lived in the time of the judges. So without going through all the history of the judges, we can realize that in the book of 1 Samuel, it comes at the tail end of the time or the period of the judges. The time of the judges was a sinful and a disastrous time for the nation of Israel, in which Israel sinned horrifically by serving other gods, by intermarrying, and by disobeying the law of God. Within the book of Judges, a pattern or a cycle can be seen in which when Israel sinned, God delivered them into the hands of their enemies. This was his punishment for their disobedience. Often we see Israel crying out to God for help, and God would bring deliverance by the hand of a judge or a military leader. So we see kind of the same dynamic happening here. Israel sins, and we see that God gives them over to, it, to the hands of the Philistines. Here we see something very similar in which Israel was in a state of sin. So two specific examples that we see of this sin in 1 Samuel. The first is presented to us in our passage when 1 Samuel 4.4 4 says, 
So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who enthroned, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. So since we looked at this this morning, I won't go into much detail, but this morning we looked at the sins of Hophni and Phinehas. They, the, they were the priests of Israel. They were the spiritual leaders serving in the temple of the Lord, and we saw that they sinned greatly. They, offer, they offered up sacrifices greedily and selfishly and that they ate whatever they wanted, and we saw that they were sexually immoral. They had no care for the things of God and no respect for him. We also saw that the fa their father Eli was one who seems to have a relationship with the Lord, but yet he, devoted, he was devoted to honoring his sons rather than God. So with the announcement in our passage tonight that Hophni and Phinehas came onto the scene with the ark, the author is showing the problem with Israel. Why were they defeated? Why did he not give them victory? It was not because they had failed to bring the Ark of the Covenant, and it was not because the God of the Covenant was not there. It was because the people of Israel failed to keep the Covenant. But it was not only the priests that were causing, the Isra causing Israel to be punished, but it was also the people as well. As we see in 1 Samuel, if we looked a couple chapters ahead, we see that the sin is actually repented of, the people turn back to God, but it shows that not only were the priests at fault, not only were the priests in sin, but we see that the people were as well. As 1 Samuel 7, 2-4 says, From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. So we see that Israel had a very big sin issue. Not only were the priests sinning, but also the people were sinning by serving other gods, by intermarrying, by disobeying the Lord. So taking into account what Israel did not do, we now look at what they did do by bringing the ark into the battle. We may ask, why didn't this work? Why it didn't help them? So first we answer this by seeing who brought the ark up or who commanded it. It was not God, but the people. So in doing so, the people were seeking to force God's hand upon this battle and bring victory. Second, this solution was fulfilled with self-effort. They were the ones that were ultimately carrying out the solution. It was not God as they didn't confer with him. And third, in looking at what Israel did do, we see they lacked an awe or a fear for God in his presence. They did not cry out for him to help, and they did not seek his direction. But they sought to bring him into the battle, but his ark, but his ark, no matter what he wanted. So we have to ask the question, what are we to learn from the Israelites? So we see why they failed in the battle, why the ark did not help, but what does this mean for us? What are we to learn from the Israelites' failure in bringing up the ark? So first we can see the Israelites were dealing with the repercussions of their sin and that God gave them over to the Philistines. So too there are negative consequences for our sins. Take several sins for example. If you gossip, it can throw your relationships into chaos. If you're prideful and you think you need no help, then people may not want to be around you. 
If you lie, no one will trust. So our sin has repercussions. They have negative consequences. Second, the Israelites' solution to these consequences was by self-effort rather than looking to God. And, to, and they also forced God to fix their situation in their own way. So my question to you is, how often do you seek to fix your sin by your own self-effort? Even if it is doing godly things, you are seeking to change your own, you are seeking to change your situation by your own doing without the help of God. And then thirdly, the Israelites should have rather turned to the word of God, which was readily before them in the prophet Samuel, and cried out to him, asking him for forgiveness and turning from their sin. So in our sin, may we not ignore or neglect it, seeking not seeking to change by our own efforts, but may we turn to God, crying out to Him for forgiveness and for His grace. May we turn to Him for the ability to turn from His sin. May we look to His Word to know how we are to live. So turning back to the narrative, turning back to the closing verses of 1 Samuel 4, we see that the ark has been at the center of this narrative. We see that the ark has been on center stage and now has been captured. Even though it is no longer in the possession of the Israelites, the ark is still on center stage in Israel as they react to the capture of it. So we're given three reactions, and we're going to look at these three reactions quickly, um, but we see that the, the first reaction is just a general reaction of the people of Israel. We see the second is a character we've already met, and the third we might call a surprising character. So the first reaction we get is we are told of a nameless Benjamite who runs from the battlefield to Shiloh to spread the news of the day's battle. And this comes from 1 Samuel 4, 12 through 13. It says, A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. So our first reaction on the capture of the ark. The city cries out as the news spread all over the city. All who heard it realized the catastrophe that had took place on the battlefield. And they responded with sorrow. And they responded with fear at the capture of the ark. The city understands that the ark symbolized the very presence of God. With the ark taken and captured, they are now in a sense, we could say they are without God. He has left them in the sense that he was not working on their behalf for victory. The second reaction is Eli's reaction. 1 Samuel 4, 14 through 18, it says, When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came to and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he had mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. So we see that the Benjamite, he brings a very climactic message to Eli. He states Israel fled. He states there was a great defeat among the people. Eli's sons were killed. And then 
the message climaxes at the ark was captured. At this message, Eli falls over backward, breaking his neck, and dies. And more specifically, it's the news of the ark being captured that makes him fall over backward and ultimately breaking his neck and dying. Eli realized how awful it was that the ark was captured and that Israel was now nothing without God. And the last reaction, maybe a surprising reaction of a character who has not been introduced yet, is the daughter-in-law of Eli, the wife of Phinehas. Her reaction leads to her death. 1 Samuel 4, 19-22, it says, Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a, a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So before she dies, her reaction leads to life. She gives birth to a son. But this woman has no care for the life she is bringing, but all she can do is focus on the capture of the ark, as this event causes her to name her son Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed from Israel. She understands that without the ark, or, without, or more so without God, Israel is nothing. It is, no, it is not God who has lost his glory, as we will see um, as we look at next week with 1 Samuel 5-6, through 6, but it is Israel who has lost its glory, for without God, Israel is nothing. Her son is about to be born without his mother, his father, his grandfather, nor his uncle. He is being born into, into the nation of Israel, which has just lost its glory. So several things, several things that can be learned from these responses to the ark. For one, we see God's faithfulness to his word, even when it means carrying out his judgment on sin. Again, as we looked at this morning in 1 Samuel 2, God had promised to punish the house of Eli, and here we see that surely his sons die on the same day exactly as God had promised. We see that Eli himself dies from the news of the ark, and we see his grandson, Ichabod, is born an orphan. What God had promised has been fulfilled. This family is now in shambles. This family that was once priests and leaders over Israel is now destroyed. May we realize in our own lives from this, from this that God fulfills his word. What he promises he carries out. May this bring us a sense of comfort in our lives and trust for each day knowing we have a God who fulfills what he says in the scriptures. But at the same time, may this bring a fear and an awe of God realizing that he does, not take, he does take sin seriously. But he promised, as he promises to punish those who sin, and he will bring about judgment on those who continue to sin. And second, we can also learn that God's glory, God's glory or God's ability to continue working is not bound to external circumstances. His ark is captured, it is taken away from Israel, but as 1 Samuel 5, 6 traces God's glory as it's manifested in an enemy territory. And as I said, next Sunday, we're going to look at that in the morning, uh, Lord willing, 
And we're going to see how God manifests his glory. He shows his sovereignty over all things, even in the enemy territory, even in a land that does not serve him as their Lord. So may this fact bring us confidence in our God who continues to work though his people are unfaithful and though life can be chaotic. So in closing, as we reflect over the passage of 1 Samuel 4, may we be aware of our sin within our lives and address it in a proper way. As we see, Israel did not, uh, did not deal with their sin in a proper way. They did not confess it at first. They did not repent of it. But yet, but they sought to fix it by their own doing, by their own self-effort. But may we seek to turn from our sin, to confess our sin to the God who forgives May we pray to God for the ability to do so. And at the same time, may we walk away from this first part of the ark narrative with a renewed sense of the faithfulness and the glory of God in his working, even in Israel's sin. Let us pray together. Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your word. Lord, I thank you for the book of 1 Samuel, for um, the unique way we see different stories of your people, Lord. And God, I just thank you for this example um, of the sin of Israel. Lord, it's somewhat of a dark passage, uh, somewhat of a negative passage. But Lord, there's many things we can learn about you, many things that we can learn about um, our own Christian lives, God. I just pray, God, that we would um, learn to deal with our sin in a proper way, addressing the heart issue, Lord, of our sin. God, not seeking to uh, change ourselves um, by our own doing, but Lord, looking to you for the help uh, to transform our hearts to be people that seek to serve you. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness, God. And Lord, even though this world is filled with sin, even though life can be chaotic, Lord, you are still at work. You're still manifesting your glory in amazing ways. And God, I thank you for this arc narrative that we can learn so much about your sovereignty, about your Uh, grace to your people, Lord, and God, I just pray that you would continue to work in us as your people. Lord, we thank you for all things, and Lord, we thank you for all the things that you provide for us. And in your name I pray, amen. Thank you, and you're dismissed.